great day we've had here on the Lord's Day with the Lord's people lifting high the name of Jesus Christ. Thank you guys for leading us in worshiping through song. For the next few moments, we're going to worship in the living word of God together. And I am so thankful for the opportunity I have to be here to open up God's holy word before you and with us together. Now, many of you, you have no idea who I am. I'm Brad Franklin. I am the children's pastor here, and I've been on staff since 2017. My wife's name is Katie. Our daughter's name is Emily. She's a junior at Central High School, and we've got one really lazy dog at home named Scout. But he's a good dog nonetheless. But I say that to say, if there is ever a way that I can minister to you, if there's ever anything that I can do for you, please let me know. We are in this together to serve our Lord Jesus Christ and to glorify his great name. And we can't do that in isolation. So come alongside me. I will come alongside you and we will serve Christ together. So if you have your Bibles this morning, I want to invite you to turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. We're going to be looking at the theme this morning of the supernatural swap. A supernatural swap that takes place in the life of a believer. You know, as you turn there, I'm reminded of something that happened to me about 15 years ago. Kind of an outdoors guy, but I wouldn't say I'm a great outdoorsman. But about 15 years ago, I was out early one morning with a friend, and we were duck hunting. And we went down to the river, and we shot nothing. But as we were leaving, let's drive around a bit just to see what we can see to scout out some new places to come hunt one day and so we did well as we were leaving I drove over a very soft patch of mud and as soon as I did my old jeep just sunk put it in four-wheel drive I couldn't go anywhere I was stuck so my friend and I we got out and we began to dig we began to push we began to rock the Jeep, and we were more stuck then than where we were before, and we were getting stucker and stucker by the moment. And so, in light of all that, we were covered from head to toe in mud. So I did the worst thing that any man would want to do, and that's call somebody to come pull you out. <laughs> so I called my friend, and if I ran in him today, he would still remind me of that moment and that I owe him everything that I have for that one time he drove to the river to pull me out, laughing the whole time. So he pulled me out, I took my friend home, and I came back to the house, and as I pulled up, my Jeep is covered with mud, and as I mentioned, I am as well. Open my door, I grab my gun, grab my bag, my waders, my decoys, and I'm headed towards the house. Now, I don't know if Katie looked out the window, I don't know if it was women's intuition, but as soon as I reached for the doorknob, it opened for me. Now, you think, wow, that's service. How would I get my wife to do that? Well, it wasn't service with a smile. Because she said, you can't come in here. I said, what do you mean I can't come in here? This is our house. This is my house. She said, you are filthy and I just cleaned. I said, well, what do you expect me to do? It's January. It's cold. I'm covered in mud. She said, hold on. So she shut the door. About a minute later, she came back in her arms, some folded up clothes. And she said, here. I said, what am I supposed to do with these? She said, figure it out. So I went in the backyard in January, changed my clothes, and then... I was able to come into the house. Now, why do I share that? Because here's the truth this morning with the supernatural swap. We're going to see that every single one of us here today, here's what we need more than anything. We need a change of clothes. Not a change of clothes for our bodies, but a change of clothes for our souls. 
You and I, we're not coming into the presence of God with what we're wearing. We will be cast out. We will be rejected. We do not have garments fit for such an occasion. But praise be to God, there is one who does. And he is willing to do a supernatural swap with you. See, the theme of 2 Corinthians 5, where we're finding this passage of Scripture that we're looking at this morning, is this. It's reconciliation. And we need reconciliation because we are alienated from God because of our sin. But Christ has made a way to reconcile us back to God. And 2 Corinthians 5.21 shows us exactly how this has been accomplished, exactly how this can happen. Now, when this verse was written, if you were to go back in the original Greek and you were to look, it's just 15 Greek words. Now, you might look at your version of the Bible and go, there's way more than 15 words here. Well, the translator so accurately took the original language, maintained the accuracy of it, and put it in a readable way for you and I today in English. But just these 15 words, they are packed full of truth. It is a theological haymaker. It is a right hook of theology that will put you straight on your bottom to your back. Opening this verse up this morning and unpacking it is like pulling up in Arkansas on the side of the road in July and throwing a lit match into a fireworks stand. There are so many truths that are going to shoot out of this verse. We're not going to cover them all, but we're going to see a few along the way. Because here's what Paul is doing in this verse. He's giving us the gospel. It's more complete. It's more concise. It's more clear here than probably any other passage of Scripture. Many theologians have said this is Paul's version of John chapter 3, verse 16. Now, if you look at a door, you'll notice there are doors all around this room. What do these doors swing on? And they're all large and heavy, but very small hinges. John Calvin, the great French reformer, said this, This verse is the small hinges on which salvation swings. So we're going to open that door this morning and watch it swing. So I want you to stand just briefly this morning as we read this one verse in the honor of God's word. Stand to our feet, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let me pray. Father, this is your holy word. This is your scripture. Spirit of God, this is how you work through your scripture. So would you allow a weak, fallible servant today to communicate the depths and truth of your infallible, perfect word? And would you use it to comfort us where we need to be comforted? And would you use it to challenge us where we need to be challenged? And we ask all of these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. The essence of this is that supernatural swap. And the essence of the supernatural swap, it's a swap of our sinfulness for Christ's righteousness. Another way, if you were to walk out of here and they said, what did the preacher say this morning? You could tell them this. Simply put, God treated Jesus as if he lived your life. And he treats you as if you lived his. So let's look just part by part 
section by section. And we're going to examine five specific truths that we're going to find in the supernatural swap here in 2 Corinthians 5 and 21 this morning. And then conclude with some implications of what a passage like this would mean upon our lives as believers here in 2021. Number one, if you're a note taker, is simply this, the sinners, the sinners. The verse begins with these three words, for our sake. Now the hour in this verse obviously represents the Corinthians, doesn't it? It represents the Apostle Paul, and it represents you and me. And in fact, we could go broader than that. It represents anyone and everyone in all time who would ever believe upon the name of Jesus Christ. And here's what we see. God is having to do something for our sake. He is having to act on our behalf. Now today, unless you've been living in a cave for the last year, we're in the tail end of what I hope when I look in my rearview mirror. I see COVID there of a pandemic. And throughout history, as you look, you see things like the Spanish flu and the Black Plague and many, many other things that have impacted scores and scores of people. There is, however, another virus. There is, however, another illness or disease, if you will, that has literally impacted and affected every single person. It is truly systemic in its nature. And what is it? It is sin. And as we see sin, the difference with the plague of sin is that no amount of mask or social distancing or quarantining or vaccines are going to keep us immune. We are all infected by it, and as a result, we must all pay the consequences. And Scripture is completely clear. The consequences for our sin is death. And even though many today, they would want to shy away from speaking of sin or death, we must address it because the Word of God speaks clearly on it. Because here's the thing about the tough parts of Scripture. The Bible's not unclear on these things. It just may be unpopular. But listen to what the Bible says about the matter and issue of sin. Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. You see, we go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, right there in the beautiful, perfect garden that God had created. Adam and Eve living in harmony with one another, the creation, and with God, and they sinned. And when Adam sinned, what we see here in Romans chapter 5, Paul is telling us it's like a domino effect. You push the one domino over, they all fall. Adam is that first domino. And when Adam sinned in the garden, here's the truth, here's the reality, is that we sinned in him and with him. He was our federal head. He was our representative in the garden. And so as a result, you and I are sinners by nature and by choice. So when I'm growing up and I tell that lie, that did not make me a sinner. Understand, the reason I told the lie was because I was a sinner in the first place. And we've got to be able to see the world through the context and the lenses of Genesis 3. Because if we don't, all the happenings that are going on in our society will make no sense to us. As we turn on the news, as we pull up a news feed, as you grab a newspaper, you guys know what that is? They roll it up and throw it in your yard. And you open that up and you see all the things that are happening. If you don't understand sin in Genesis 3, you're going to be utterly confused about why things are the way that they are. As we mentioned, the world is infected by sin. No one is excluded. This is why God had to act for our sake. Romans chapter 3 verse 10 is clear. There is none righteous, no, not one. We have to look in the mirror and realize we're not good. 
We are not enough on our own. One of the most dangerous lies that people are believing today is that men and women are inherently good. But scripture is counter to that. We are a depraved people from the top of our head to the soles of our feet. And the problem here this morning is I think with myself and all of us, it's not that we don't realize we're sinful. I think everybody here would go, oh yeah, I'm sinful. I think our problem is we don't realize how stinking sinful we actually are. And we realize just how sinful we truly are. We understand that it was for our sake that God had to act. Ezekiel 18.20 says the soul who sins will die. This is the effect of being infected by sin is death. The result of our sin all throughout scripture is death. Now there are different types of death. Now remember the stories. We go back to the garden with Adam and Eve. When they sinned, they were going to have to face physical death. But it was not immediately. See, everyone here, we are in sin, but you are still breathing. But you know physical death is awaiting you unless Christ returns. And so as we consider physical death, our number has been pulled. It's just a matter of not if, but when God is going to call it. And so we realize that physical death awaits everyone who is in sin, and we know we are guaranteed one out of every one person dies. But there's more death than just physical death in the Bible. We realize there's also a spiritual death. And I pray it doesn't, but it could include some of you here today. You are spiritually dead because you are apart from Christ. But there's some of you here, you are spiritually alive because you have been made alive in Christ. When Adam and Eve sinned, they didn't get to stay in harmony with one another, with the creation, and with the creator in the garden. He kicked them out. And so that relationship with God was now broken. That is what our sin brings. But then there's another death. We see there's a physical death, a spiritual death, but there's also an eternal death. And this is the full penalty and payment for our sin. If we physically die, and when we physically die, we are spiritually dead, then we know we have eternal death, which is a forever conscious experience in a place called hell. But if we don't recognize our sin, first and foremost, that it was for our sake, we're going to miss the rest of this verse. If you do not understand that it was for our sake, you will not understand the rest of the Bible. If you do not understand that it was for our sake, the things of the world will make no sense to us. If we do not understand that it was for our sake, we can never come to Christ in the first place. You must recognize that you are a sinner before you can be transformed into a saint. You must recognize that you are lost before you can be found. You must recognize that you are blind before you are made to see. You must recognize that you are filthy before you can be cleansed. You must recognize that you are dead in your sins and trespasses before you can be made alive in Jesus Christ. This is why it was for our sake. Now, God did not act for our sake so he could fulfill all of our dreams and destinies, so he could have the best house, best job. God did not act for our sake so that we could have our best life now. God did not act for our sake because he was lonely or needed us. He needs nothing. He acted for our sake because we are helpless and hopeless without him. Now, if I just prayed and said amen, many of you would go, amen, I've got to get out of here because now I'm utterly depressed. But before there to be good news, you've got to look at the bad news. I had a child ask me a couple of weeks ago, why did God even allow sin in the first place? I mean, he knew 
we were going to fall. He knew that we were going to need him. Why did he not just skip that step? Now, I've been into a jewelry store before once to purchase the engagement ring for my wife, and it was down at the very end of the aisle where the clearance section is. But nonetheless, when they pull that diamond out, do you know what they put the diamond on? A black cloth. Now, why would they put the diamond on a black cloth so it pops, so you can see it in all its brilliance, no matter how small it might actually be? And that's the backdrop in which we're dealing with here. We would never know how great and glorious and how wonderful the gospel of Jesus Christ was and is if we did not compare it to our sin. We are that backdrop, that cloth. But the diamond that sits on it that we see so beautifully is the love of God. For our sake, the sinners. Next, we move to what God specifically did for our sake. And the scripture tells us he made. For our sake, he made. And here we find number two, the sovereign. The he here is God the Father. He is the sovereign. What does this mean? He's in charge. He's in control. He rules and he reigns however he pleases. So to go back and reference COVID again, goodness, this past year at the church, and I know in your own lives as well, at home and at work and at school, we've made plans, haven't we? We've made calendars, we've made agendas, we've made budgets, and then we realized that we had to put the brakes on and take a detour. We also realized here at the church that we had programs and events and emphasis that we wanted to put out to help you in your walk with Christ and to reach the community around us. We realized that God did not have that in store for us this past year. So we had to go to plan B and plan C and plan D. I honestly think we might have implemented a plan H somewhere along the way, and I'm sure you have as well. But please know, let's go back to the garden. When Adam and Eve fell, do you think that took God by surprise? Of course not. Do you think God was caught off guard? Absolutely not. When sin entered the world, God did not have to go, oh, son, spirit, what shall we do? Do we have a plan B or C? No, no, no. God has no need for a plan B. God has no need for a plan C or D. God is completely sovereign. Scripture is clear. Listen to Psalm 115.3. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. And here was the plan A. He made. For our sake, he made. See, God had the plan in eternity past to send Jesus to pay for our salvation. Bottom line, there was no plan B, C, D, E, or F. That was the plan. It's not an afterthought. It's not a backup. Salvation is initiated by a sovereign God. It is, in fact, a supernatural work of the Trinity. Now, I love the song that we sang, The Lord is My Salvation. And there's a line in there where it's praise to the Father, praise to the Son, praise to the Spirit, because each are intricately involved in our salvation. We don't have time to chase this rabbit down the trail but what you need to understand, what I need to understand is this, is that God calls us to salvation. God the Father calls you to be saved. Christ the Son, he was crucified for your salvation. The Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God convicts you of your salvation. And in response, what do you do? You commit your life to him through repentance and trust and belief. Another way to look at it is this, is that God the Father authored your salvation and my salvation. Christ the Son accomplished our salvation upon the cross. The Spirit of God applies your salvation. And then what do you do? What do I do? We accept the salvation that he has graciously 
given to us. It was in eternity past, in the perfect harmony and plan and will of the Trinity, that this plan of salvation was brought together. He made. Listen to Acts chapter 22, verse 23. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Get that definite plan, foreknowledge of God. Salvation in eternity past was brought forth for us. He made. You know, salvation wouldn't have happened unless God designed it. We could give 10,000 men 10,000 lifetimes with unlimited resources, and they never could have concocted a plan of salvation like our God designed. In fact, we see this throughout human history. Every religion in the world has tried to come up with their own plan of salvation, and it utterly ends down the same dead-end road, system of works attempting to appease some God that exists in the universe. But listen to what God says about this. Isaiah 64, 6 says, all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. If we think our good works are going to get us there, we have missed it. Our good works will get us nowhere because what do our good works look like before God? Isaiah tells us like a polluted garment or filthy rags. If our good works look like this before God, what do you think our sin looks like before him? Salvation's God's work. It was for our sake that he made. Now look at the next phrase with me. Him to be sin. Number three is this, the substitute. We are introduced to the substitute. We have the sinner, the sovereign, and the substitute. See, we're sinners, but our sovereign God has acted on our behalf. How? It occurred. It was accomplished through a substitute. I remember one very bizarre day in my senior year in high school, and I guess the school was very desperate, and they were in a really awkward position this particular morning. Went to a very small school, about 40 students in it in my graduating class. It's since grown. But I showed up to school, and I got called to the principal's office as an 18-year-old. And so I walk in, and I'm shaking in my boots because I'm going through the Rolodex in my mind wondering, what did I do, when did I do it, and who did I do this to that has warranted me being called to the principal's office this morning right out of the gate before the first bell even rang? So I walk in, and obviously the principal sees it in my face, and so he plays into it just a bit, and then I'm really getting shaky. My palms are sweaty. My voice is starting to crack, and then he smiles, kind of cuts his eyes over to me, and he says, I'm just playing. I need a favor from you. Now, you're in a really good position when your principal is asking you for a favor. I'm going to cash this in. I said, well, what do you need? He said, this is going to sound really bizarre, because it is, but we have no subs. Can you sit in a seventh grade class today? Now, I'm sure that wouldn't fly here in 2021, but in 1999, we were gold. <laughs> and so first I thought he was joking. I said, well, what about my classes? He says, don't worry about them. We'll get them covered. I said, but what about the last class, seventh period? I said, you know, our coach, he's not going to want me to skip basketball practice to sub for seventh graders. He said, we'll be covered by then. Just get us through these first six periods. Absolutely. And I got to tell you, I went into this classroom with a bunch of seventh graders, and the power went to my head very quickly. <laughs> I had them popcorn reading out of a world history book. I had them taking pop quizzes, writing sentences on the board. I mean, it was just hammer to fist to the desk, telling them how it was. And as we got towards the end, it was around that fifth or sixth period. My day was almost done, and it was possibly the end of my first and last time to sub. There were two boys. They were not doing what they were told. And I remember walking over, and for the most part, the kids did really well that day. I said, hey, you guys need to read. I'm like, no, we're not reading. Like, 
you don't understand, I'm the sub. You have to do what I say. Like, no, we don't have to do what you say. And I noticed that their next class was pre-algebra, and one was copying the other one's homework. I thought, okay, I'm going to enforce my will here. I'm going to wield my sword. So I went to grab his backpack, at least so he thought, and as he reached to grab it, I grabbed both of those papers off his desk and just shredded them. Just tore them up. Now, if you happen to have been a seventh grader and you say, I remember that, please don't come at me afterwards. I will buy you a cup of coffee. I'm sorry at that time. But I was the sub. But here's the deal. I was not a good one by any means at all. But a real substitute does this. A real substitute takes the place of the one who is supposed to be there and does it right does it properly, fulfills the duty. The hymn that we see in this passage has moved from God the Father to God the Son. The substitute's name is Jesus Christ. And the concept of a substitute is vital to our salvation. It is essential. Why? Because God is holy and he's also just. And those are two attributes of him that work in harmony together. And here's what I mean by that. Due to this, God being holy and just, he cannot write off our sins. God's not going to act like you didn't sin against him. He's too holy. He's too just. He's not just going to go, oh, they sinned. Who cares? No big deal. He had to create that plan of salvation that would harmonize, that would fulfill his holiness and justice to the fullest. See, because every sin that has ever been committed throughout human history will be punished. Think about that. The smallest lie to the largest murder and everywhere in between will be punished. And here's where they'll be punished. It'll either have happened upon the cross of Christ at Calvary or it will happen by individuals in an eternal place called hell forever and ever. Simply put, our sins are upon Christ or they are upon us. They can be nowhere else. And we see this foreshadowing of a substitute all throughout the Old Testament. And the Old Testament gives us a picture of what is known as substitutionary atonement, Christ paying for our sins as a substitute that would take place in him thousands of years later. And countless animals have been sacrificed. Gallons upon gallons of blood have been spilt out. But none of that could do what Christ did three hours one Friday afternoon. Listen to the passage, Isaiah 53, that Justin referenced for us in the opening. Verses 3, 4, and 5 tell us, he, and this is talking about Christ, was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought peace, and by his wounds we are healed. Have you ever wondered what the plan of salvation was about? This was written 600 years before Christ even came. This has been God's plan. Who punished Jesus? Well, in a sense, the people of the day did. In a sense, we did. But I hope you pick up the greater context of this substitutionary atonement. God punished Jesus on our behalf, in our place, through that perfect substitute. Now, rest assured, this was an injustice in a sense because Christ never sinned and he was being punished for something that he didn't do. But this was not victimology. Christ was not a victim. Do you know why? Because he says, I willingly lay my life down. No one takes my life from 
me. Christ willingly laid his life down. He willingly bore the wrath of God. All of the sins of all those who would ever believe, past, present, and future, were placed upon him. Our unbelief, our impure thoughts, our impure motives, our careless, scathing words, all of our acts of disobedience were put on to him. As our substitute, Jesus experienced the wrath, the fury, the judgment, the separation from God for our sins. And God's wrath, that anger, was satisfied upon Jesus Christ on the cross. We call that propitiation. He satisfied God's wrath upon Christ as our perfect substitute. God maintained his holiness, executed his judgment in the perfect plan that would bring salvation to you and me. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. Which brings us to number four, the sinless. We've got to press in and speak a bit more about Christ as we look at this verse. He's the centerpiece of it. God is the sovereign who acted for our sake, isn't he? He did this through his son, the substitute. But there was a qualification that had to be met for someone to be a substitute to pay for the penalty of our sins. Now, if we were alive in that time, we could have said, hey, I'll die for those people. Wouldn't have meant anything because I'm not God and I'm a filthy sinner. So my sacrifice for you on the cross would mean nothing in yours for me and anyone else for that matter. But he had to be sinless, and he was, because none of us being that substitute, marred with our sin, needed someone who qualified to be that substitute who was not marred with sin, and that is Christ. Now, I think you see back-to-back here these two phrases might initially, if you were just to pull them out and compare them, to be a bit contradictory, but they're not. They actually complement each other. It says, him to be sin, and then the next phrase that we're covering in this point is, who knew no sin. So how could someone not know sin but still be sin? But in no way, shape, or form did Jesus ever, not even once, not even an ounce, not even a minosecond, become a sinner. Not ever did Jesus become a sinner on the cross. Now, if you ever turn on Christian television, you'll see a lot of name it and claim it preachers on TV. And they are asking you for money for their fancy suits, for their wife's plastic surgery, for their Rolexes, for their jets, for their mansions. And you think, oh, wow, look at that. That's a name it and claim it prosperity gospel. But you know, a lot of those guys, if you listen closely, there's an undertone to their teaching. And many of them will teach this, is that Jesus became a sinner on the cross. That's heretical. As a heretical thought because Jesus was never a sinner. He was not guilty. He could not become a sinner because he was and is God. I love what Dr. Steve Lawson says of this thought here. Christ was personally pure, but he was forensically guilty. This means that even though Jesus did not sin, God treated him as if he was a sinner. Do you see the fine line? Jesus has been called the sinless sinner. Jesus was treated as if he committed all the sins of all those who would ever believe. They were charged to his account. He was punished as if he lived our lives. I mean, think about that for a moment. You know, I'm a glutton for punishment, if you can't tell already. And as I turn on the TV or I get online, I find myself watching a couple of different genres of videos and and reading articles in these two areas. One is politics and the other is religion. Now, obviously, you mix those together at Thanksgiving dinner, it can turn ugly very, very quickly. But I found myself with many, many cringeworthy moments this past year, but two in particular when it came to Christ's sinlessness. And when I heard these, they just absolutely disturbed me. 
I was watching one major cable TV news network, and the commentator actually made the phrase in talking about the narrative of things that are happening in our society today, and he said, well, Jesus himself was not even perfect. And just a pit in my stomach. It was like a gut punch. Are you serious? Christ wasn't perfect? No, Christ was absolutely, totally, purely perfect. And then I saw something from sort of the political side where that intersected over here to more of the religious side. And I saw this guy who may call himself a pastor, but he's not biblically qualified to be, saying this right here. Jesus had implicit bias. A woman in the Bible spoke truth to power to Jesus to reveal his racist tendencies. Let me tell you something. We don't have the privilege to make up any kind of Jesus we want to make. We don't have the privilege to define Jesus in our own terms. That's already been done for us. And this may sound harsh, but Christ is coming to us with more of the attitude of, you can take me or leave me. I don't change. Here I am. And at the core of who he is, is sinless. Regardless of what anybody says about him, regardless of what any kind of cultural narratives people try to put down on Jesus, he is above and beyond all of those things. He knew no sin. He was, is, and will ever be sinless. Now, in referencing the Old Testament again, do you remember what kind of sacrifice they had to have? Couldn't be a lame one. It was to be one without mark or spot. Let me share a couple of things from 1 Peter with you. 1 Peter 2, 22, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. 1 Peter 1.19 connects Christ to those Old Testament sacrifices and the good animals that needed to be offered up. But with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, Jesus was the only one that could be the perfect sacrifice. So when you hear of a vile, a lewd, a disgusting, sinful act, even for us, it can be difficult to process, can it? But think of Christ, who was perfectly pure, having all of those lewd, vile, disgusting acts put down on him. The very worst sins of all those who would ever believe were put onto him. It's no wonder in Matthew 27, 46, he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Never had a sinful thought, motive, or attitude. Never said a sinful word or did a sinful action. Listen to Charles Spurgeon's words about Christ. Christ was not guilty. He could not be made guilty, but he was treated as if he were guilty because he willed to stand in the place of the guilty. He was not only treated as a sinner, but he was treated as if he had been sin itself in the abstract. This is an amazing utterance, and I love Spurgeon's words here. The sinless one was made to be sin. No one else here, including me, could be made sin. Do you know why? Because we already are. Christ could be made sin because he was not sin and did not have any sin. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. And then finally, fifthly, let's scrunch all of this one together. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Number five, we see the saved. The saved. Because of all that's happened in this passage, we can be saved from that sin. For our sake, Christ has accomplished our salvation. Now, the salvation that we've been given in Jesus Christ is literally like two sides of the same coin. If we look at one side of the coin, we constantly and rightly and properly stress 
the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. We have to do that. But we also at times need to flip the coin and look at the other side and realize that we're not only just saved by Jesus' death on the cross, we're saved by his perfect, pure life that we've been talking about for the last 12 minutes. We understand that it's by Jesus' death and life. See, his passive obedience is this. He just gave himself over, willingly laid himself down, and they crucified him. His active obedience was that he perfectly fulfilled the law in every single way that we could not. Back to Romans 5 that we referenced early in the message. Verse 19, for by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Here is that supernatural swap. I mentioned this in the introduction. It is the supernatural swap. It's a financial word that we see here. It's called imputation. It's the idea that something is being credited to our accounts. See, we are imputed or credited with Adam's sin because when he fell, we fell. But then at salvation, when you come to the end of yourself, you find Christ. And at that point, you are imputed or credited with Jesus' perfect life. See, when we're saved, don't think of it like this, like you're given a blank slate. You have this unpayable debt before God. I have an unpayable debt before God. That's why hell lasts forever, because he's holy and he's infinitely holy, and we can never pay him back for our sins. Does that make sense? That's why that lasts forever. So when you're saved, you think, oh, my debt's erased, and you're right, it is, but it's no longer a zero-sum game. You're actually credited with something. It's not like your debt went from a billion to zero. You're given a billion in your account, and that billion is the righteousness, the perfect life of Jesus Christ given credit or imputed to you. That's the double transaction that's happening in our salvation. The worst of us was put onto Christ, and the best of him is put onto us. We're clothed in our own sin and Adam's sin. At salvation, we get clothed in Jesus Christ righteousness. It's not the subtraction of just sin, it's the addition of his righteousness. William Barclay calls it changing clothes, that supernatural swap. He says, we change from grave clothes into grace clothes. See, just as Jesus was not made sin by any sin in himself, you and I are not made righteous by any righteousness in ourselves. It's all found in Christ. Jonathan Edwards says, we contribute nothing to our salvation except the sin that made it necessary. So as we begin to wrap up this morning, as we close in a message like this, it's one verse, five points. I mean, it's pretty theologically driven, but it's that theology, that knowledge of God that drives us to know him more, which in turn increases our affections and obedience towards him. But there are some implications for us to consider if the Holy Spirit lives within you this morning, you've probably have already found some of those yourself. But let me guide you along the way. I wouldn't think with this many people here, could be, but there may be somebody in the room. I would suspect there's somebody in the room who doesn't know the Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray this morning that you've been confronted in your sin and you are haunted by the results of your sin that will bring death physically, spiritually, and eternally. But I pray that you are so encouraged by the love of Jesus Christ that he would endure upon the cross for you as your sins were placed onto him. Do you know the Lord? Do you want to know the Lord? Are you going to stand before God and plead your, plead your own righteousness? Are you Are going to say, look at all the things I did, all the money I gave, look at my baptism, look at my church membership? It means nothing without the blood of Jesus Christ on your life. 
this morning, if you do not know the Lord, here's what I would encourage you to do. Would you come grab me? I'm going to hang around a bit. I won't embarrass you. I won't point you out. Just open up the word of God and see what he has said about the salvation he has designed for you to experience. If you don't want to find me, find another staff member. Find somebody on this platform. We want you to know that you know Jesus Christ is Lord in your life and in your heart. I think there's some other people here this morning. You may be saved, but you have been wrestling with doubt and assurance this morning. And that's the diagnosis. And you know what the remedy is? This passage of Scripture, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. Let me give you some encouragement in that this morning. I don't know if you've ever driven or flown to the same place. There's a couple cities that I have found myself driving to and flying to at least to catch another plane many, many times. One of those is Dallas. I'm sure some of you can relate to that. Another is St. Louis. When I've driven to St. Louis, I can tell you the exact moment I cross over the city limits into the city and I see the arch and see Bush Stadium and all the other things. I could be driving along and I could go, oh, April 11th at 10.30 a.m. That's when I crossed into St. Louis. You realize there's some people in the room. You can do that with your salvation. You can say the exact moment that you came to Christ. You can talk about the sights, the smells, the sounds, everything that is going on in your conversion experience. And I know there's some of you this morning, you're sitting there wrestling with your assurance going, I I don't know if I can do that. You ever flown to the same place that you've driven to, like a St. Louis? See, when I fly to St. Louis, I don't know exactly when I cross over that city limit. I don't know exactly when I have officially gone over the city limit and in the airspace of St. Louis. But I know when that plane touches down with the wheels on the runway at Lambert Field and I step out and my feet hits the ground, do you know what I know? I know I'm in St. Louis. And there's some of you here, you might be going, was I saved at 8? Or maybe I was saved at 18. Or maybe I was saved at 30. I really don't know. But here's what I do know, Brad. I know that I love the Lord. I am repenting of my sin and I am growing in faith. Can I just tell you? You're in St. Louis. It's not the perfection of your faith. It is the progression of it. Don't look back at a one-time experience and put all your hope in that. Don't look back at what you're doing to actively maintain your salvation. Because you're not. Look back at what Christ has done for you. Salvation is not your work. There's your assurance. It is the work of God in you. There's more assurance. Are you steadily, daily, hour by hour, minute by minute, trusting in the sufficiency of Christ's work in your own? If so, would you just rest in that? You are in St. Louis. And finally, for some of you this morning, you're saved and goodness gracious, you know it. I mean, you are confident beyond a doubt. You have no utterances of doubts. You are assured. Let me just tell you this morning, would you preach the gospel to yourself constantly? The gospel has turned into a cliche a bit in the church today. Oh, we've got to have the gospel. We've got to preach the gospel. Do we know what the gospel is? You heard it this morning. Preach it to yourself. There's nothing like preaching the gospel to yourself that will warm your soul, that will increase your obedience, and that will steer you away from sin and make you hate it. And then finally, let's take this gospel to others. We do it in love, but we can't round off the sharp edges. We can't soften it. We can't water it down. So let our message be the message of the king and our heart to be the heart of the king and go wield that sword in truth and in love. We do no good for ourselves. We do no good for the world to give them 
half this story, half this gospel. Let's pray together. So just bow with me. This morning, if you're not saved, I pray the Holy Spirit will open your eyes to that reality, that truth. Come find us at the end of this message this morning. We want to share with you how you will move from death to life, from the road to hell to a place secured and protected by Jesus Christ himself in heaven for you. If you're struggling with assurance or doubt this morning, I would love to pray for you. I would absolutely love to lift you up before the Lord so that he can comfort you. But if you love the Lord and you feel repentant and remorseful over sin and you're growing in him, don't worry about the exact moment you came to Christ. Just simply keep trusting and putting your heads on the hands on the sacrificial head of Christ, knowing that he has done this for you. And if you're assured, tomorrow morning when you get up, preach the gospel to yourself. Let it warm your soul. Let it strengthen your obedience. And let it abhor sin in your life that you hate it. You do not desire it.